This is Stephen Thibault, CAS, with another podcast, In Conversation. In January 2020, Tom Fleischman received the Career Achievement Award from the Cinema Audio Society. Tom's collaboration with director Martin Scorsese spans almost 40 years, producing some of the most memorable soundtracks in cinema history. From his 1982 Scorsese mix for King of Comedy, to his Cinema Audio Society, Academy, and BAFTA-winning work for Hugo, and his current 2020 CAS Award nomination for The Irishman, Tom demonstrates the perfect collaborative and creative relationship between a director and his re-recording mixer. Of course, the list of talented directors with whom he's worked is extensive. It's Tom's work with directors such as Jonathan Demme, Robert Benton, Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, Warren Beatty, George Roy Hill, John Sayles, and Francis Ford Coppola that reveals the significance of his work and how deserving he is of the CAS Career Achievement Award. I was delighted to be able to sit down with Tom on the morning of the CAS Awards and reflect with him on his career. I started by bringing him back to the 70s and 80s with these sound clips. Right now I can see it. Who is it? Cars. Come on, you haven't heard the good part yet. It's dramatic narration. It's like Red Sovine. Hey, up there, ah. Batman, what are you doing on my roof? Why, I don't care if you're Santa Claus. Please stop. What's the matter? My ear. I told you we should have stopped back there. It's the sound. What do you mean? Your song. You can be cruel, you know that? Did anybody ever tell you that? You can be real cruel. I have an aversion to song. That's what makes you an old asshole. Now, just <laughs> sing along with me. Melvin and Howard. Melvin and Howard. And, and the first clip was uh, Dog Day Afternoon that your oh, mother edited. Oh, okay. I was wondering what that, with all the sirens and everything, I think it was at Serpico. <laughs> Was it do the right thing? <laughs> no, I, I threw you a curveball, and it wasn't something you actually mixed. But, right. <laughs> um, I'm sure it was conversation at home at that time. Oh, yeah. Well, I was actually out there in Brooklyn uh, when that some of those scenes were shot. Not the ones with all the sirens, but I visited the set several times. Jimmy Sabat was the production mixer, and he invited me to come out. I was actually, at that point, still not mixing. I was... Uh, still doing dailies transfers. So I was doing Jimmy's dailies transfers at uh, Transaudio. Okay, but you were in sound. I was in sound, yes. Yes, I was by that time in sound. Yeah. I, I had read that you um, were interested in being a picture editor initially. I was, yes. Well, I grew up with my mother, obviously. <laughs> and when I was in high school, I would go in like on my spring break and uh, work in the cutting room. I worked in cutting room on Bonnie and Clyde. I made Log, uh, log book entries and cinetabs and uh, boxed up dailies and things. Wow. I, I remember like sitting at the editing bench with the film and I think one, at one point she had me remaking splices because she was only she would only splice one side when she made a cut she would only splice one side of the film on the base because if you splice, you know, put splicing tape on the emulsion side, it would sometimes rip the emulsion off and it would make like this green color, right? And uh, they were getting ready for screening and she taught me how to make a two-frame, a two-perf splice. Okay. On both sides. Yeah, so I did that. 
So I was very into, yes, I was, I was really, when I got out of high school, I graduated from high school in 1969, and uh, I was really interested in editing. And I went to NYU for two semesters, you know, my freshman year, and I dropped out because uh, I had it in my mind that I, had, I knew it all, right? Because I had grown up in this family. My father was a producer, director, writer for the networks, and my mom was cutting film, great movies, The Hustler, and... Uh, <laughs> Bonnie and Clyde, Dog but, Day. But yeah, wow. Little Big Man. and, and uh, So uh, I, you know, and I got to NYU and it was like a lot of prerequisites. I had to take chemistry and English and, you know, all these stuff. It felt like I was still back in high school. And I thought, this is worthless. I, I'm going to just get a job. And I looked for a job in film editing and picture editing. But there was nothing really around that summer. This was 1970. And uh, my mother was working on, uh, I think it was either Little Big Man or Night Moves. Steve Rotter, who's another editor out of her class, moved up from being her assistant. Um, he suggested that I call this guy Alicia Birnbaum, who had a little, opened a little sound shop in the Brill Building on 49th Street. And uh, he had one room on the eighth floor, and he had a Nagra with a resolver and a 1635 Dubber recorder, a Magnatech. Uh -huh. And uh, he was building a Foley room in the office next door. And uh, that was my first job, I, you know, right out of dropping out of college. I had gotten married at the age of 19. Oh, and, very young. Yeah, I started young. <laughs> So I, I don't know, I just got hooked into sound, like right off the bat. It was, uh, I was fascinated that, you know, the VU meters were cool and, uh, you know, it's all these knobs and w what does an equalizer do? And, and I think we can all relate to that. You know, it's, it's <laughs> like all this cool equipment. I couldn't figure out how the signal got into that tape. You know, it was, it looked like hard, the oxide was solid. And how does it rearrange molecules in there? You know, it, it, it's just the whole thing fascinated me. So, I, you know, I, I really didn't know much about it. I had visited a couple of mixes with my mom when I was a kid. And at that time, Dick Voracek was like king of the mixing world in, in New York. And he had done all of the movies that she had worked on. So they were very good friends. And she would take me to the mix as, as a young child. You know, I was 10, 11 years old. And... Uh, you know, my favorite activity there was like I would sneak behind. This was at Reeves Sound Studios in New York, which was at that time, the you know, the big solid sound place. I would like to sneak behind the screen. And they, I would look at them looking through. <laughs> I'd look through the perforations in the screen and, and watch what they were doing. And I remember one time they went out to lunch and I got up on Dick's chair at the console and I started fiddling around with the faders and then he had it like a 10 channel was that all huh yeah that was it 10 channel 10 faders and i remember him saying to me uh you know i don't mind if you play with those things but just make sure you put them all back the way they were when you <laughs> when you're finished <laughs> <laughs> and did you i don't know i don't think I, I at that point it was like the color drained from my face was, dick was great uh i worked with dick for many years he was really my uh my mentor and my teacher. What a gift. Uh, yeah. 
When I started work, I started eventually at, after this job at Image Sound Studios with Alicia's Place. I worked there for two years, building a sound effects library, recording Foley. Uh, if we didn't have a sound effect, you know, the sound editors would come in with a list of stuff they needed for the film, and, and I would audition effects for them and transfer it off to 35 mag. And uh, if I didn't have something, we'd go out and record it. Oh, that's great. And, uh, you know, I would take a Niagara 3 and, and a microphone and go out and, you know, try and get what they needed. I remember uh, spending a good part of that summer of, it was either 1970 or 71, recording sound effects for Serpico and uh, going around the city with Bob Raitano, who was the, you know, the assistant sound editor on that job. And uh, we went all over the city to hospitals and police stations and tenement hallways, recording ambiences and getting like, these, and the cops were great, you know, they would ask us what we were working on. And we were afraid to tell them <laughs> because Serpico was kind of a dirty word in the New York City Police Department at that time. But they were really cooperative. We had to, the opening of the film is a, he's been shot in the face and they put him in the back of a police car and drive him to the hospital. And there's these sirens going. And uh, Bob Raitano wanted to record some sirens. So we had, the, we had the cop car that they'd used in the production, which looked like a New York City cop car. And... Uh, we put a, we taped a, a shotgun mic to the windshield and went up to Dykeman Street to this sort of back road up in upper Manhattan and turned on the siren and, and were driving along and, and recording the siren. And actually a police car came along <laughs> and stopped us and asked us what we were doing. And we told him, we explained to him what we were doing, recording the sound effects for a movie. And, oh, we can help you out, you know? And then oh, there was great. two of us, you know, because we needed more than one siren. So we had two cars, you know, with sirens going up and down. Now, now back then, that was the, the longer siren? The... Yes, that's right. They didn't have the whoop-whoop sirens yeah. or any of the, those. It was really the old, it sounded like an air raid siren. You yeah. know, it's just that you can turn it on and off and it would go up and down. Uh, <laughs> And that's what you hear in the film. And if you look at Serpico, the opening of that movie, it's like driving to the hospital. You you, you hear that in um, Dog Day Afternoon as well. Yes, probably. That, they probably used Not this. the ones that you recorded, It could have been. It could have been. <laughs> could have been some of the same ones, because that was after. Okay. Was it? Was Dog Day after? I think Dog Day was after Serpico. Yeah. So I also saw that Robert Wise... Yes. Was a mentor of your mother's? Yes. Was was he a mentor to you as well? Um, I knew him. He used to come have dinner with us often when he was in New York. And they did a movie together called Odds Against Tomorrow, which I don't think anybody's ever seen, but it's a great movie. It was way Odds ahead of its time. Tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, it was with uh, Ed Begley Sr., uh, Robert Ryan, and Harry Belafonte. It was about a bank heist gone wrong over a racialist. One of the robbers was a racist and the other guy was black and, you know, they clashed and it turned out badly. <laughs> did, um, did you have normal conversation with mom about how to use sound creatively no. and storytell through, through it no, at all? No, not really. No, no. I think I, you know, I think what I got most from her was just a, a sense of story, a sense of... Uh, how things play, how to, how to know when something is playing 
and when it's not playing. Uh, when something in the, in the, not necessarily in the track, it could be in the cut, isn't working. And also just, you know, the thing that she told me when I first started in this business was, I can help you get in the door, but from that point on, it's going to be up to you. You got to show up. You know, you got to be on time. And you got to show up every day. 90% of being successful, I don't know who it was that said this, but 90% of being successful is just showing up. Mm -hmm. And she really drilled that into me as a you know, young man coming into the, into the world. And uh, it, she was really, really, really helpful in that. Would you say today you, you'd pass that same oh, yes. recommendations I on? I do. To, I absolutely to... <laughs> do. I mean, I, I read a lot. Like I go on, online and I go to these forums, these sound forums and stuff, and these young, young people coming up in the business, starting out, and they've already got, you know, a Pro Tools or a, or some, a bunch of microphones, and they're talking about the plugins and how do you, you know, do you use Isidore, what's your dialogue chain? And I try and impress upon them, if I can, that that's really not what's important. It's really not what's important. Uh, what's important is just having a sense of when something is working dramatically. You know, with what's going on on screen is what's important. I don't look at the meters. You know, I look at the meters to see if there's signal passing. That's it. But my eyes are locked to the screen. And I want to know that, you know, that the scene that I'm looking at is playing. And I always try and see it as an audience would see it for the first time. On an emotional level. On an emotional level, exactly. One of the great joys that I find in mixing is mixing a music cue into a scene and having my hand on the fader, and it's working, and it's playing, and you just get, I, I get this feeling, it's just a wonderful feeling inside, uh, just knowing that it's, the scene is playing, you know, that, that's, that makes it exciting to me, uh, so. Are there any films, not only that you've done, but growing up, that gave you that reaction that? Um, I, the one thing that really pops into my mind when you ask me that question is Barry Lyndon. Oh, great film. I remember yeah. going to see Barry Lyndon at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, and it just blew me away. I mean, the, the, first of all, the picture was absolutely gorgeous. The way it was shot, the cinematography was amazing, and the sound was great, too. And it just connected me to that film in a way that I hadn't felt really a lot. Lawrence of Arabia probably had similar kind of influence. Absolutely. I've um, seen that a dozen times, and... <laughs> yeah. Gosh, there were so many films that I loved. Uh, obviously, Dr. Strangelove is probably my favorite film of all time. And uh, The Hustler, too. is a, oh. it, The Hustler is a terrific sound job, terrific mix. The music was really good. And Were you on the dub stage for The Hustler? I might have gone in one day, you know, for, I was pretty young. Because I was, was, I was only about 10 years old. Dick Vorosek, too, right? Dick, yes, Dick did that. I do remember going into an ADR room with George when George C. Scott was there. I remember she <laughs> took me into they were doing ADR with George C. Scott and uh, I got to watch a little bit of that. And I went on the set one night down under the West Side Highway and you know when he's down there in that dive bar where he gets his thumbs broken. Uh, they were shooting in there. What a wonderful education. And that was just, you know, I was a 10-year-old kid, and it was like, you know, I'm sitting there, and Paul Newman is sitting there playing poker with some of the grips, and it just, 
you know, that was it. I just knew that was at that point that this is the world I want to be in. Did you ever dabble with actually doing production sound? Uh, not really, no. The, the only kind of field recording that I did was with sound effects, going out and recording sound effects. No, I never did production sound. I did work a little bit with Chris Newman because I was doing his dailies, and he would invite me down to the set. And they were shooting in Central Park on hair. Oh, wow. Uh, they were shooting hair in Central Park at night. So after work, and I was working in Midtown, and it was a short walk up to the park, and I would go up there after work at 6 o'clock and spend the evening, you know. And uh, he did invite me to come in one weekend. They were shooting down on Wall Street, and he had me up on a ladder with a pair of binoculars spotting sync. John Savage was singing one of the songs, and I was looking at him to, you know, letting Chris know, yeah, the sync looks pretty good, you know. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it was, he had an earwig, you know, it was a mm -hmm. long lens, and he was way down the street, you know, and we needed binoculars to see. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. So I did actually, that was the most work I had done on, on a set was that. And that wasn't really work. It was more like just fun. You know, I was yeah, just, just visiting and, and helping out, you know. Well, they're definitely different environments. Oh, yeah. Be being on set versus sure. the dub stage. <laughs> I, I, I do not envy production mixers. I know that is a really tough job, particularly when you get out on a bad location and... You know, oh, yeah, here. Or, or suddenly the director has a great idea and you're not prepared for it and, you know... It, it, well, the one thing I've learned about production sound is you have to be proactive and yeah. have three or four solutions for every scene. Yeah. And and when that director says, oh, we're going to do this instead, you've got it covered. Right, right. It's interesting. I've, I've In the last couple of years, I've started teaching. And I'm teaching a course with Chris Newman at School of Visual Arts in New York. How wonderful is that? And <laughs> we do production and post-production. So he's teaching like wiring and miking and booming and recording on set. And it's great to watch him with the students, you know, like he'll give them some problem. Like, okay, the guy's got no shirt on and you need to wire him. Go ahead, figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Okay, well, can put it in his hair, you know, put it behind his ear or something come up with a solution. So I know, you know, it's like just working with him over the years, I've come to understand what a difficult job production mixing is. And I know that when I run into poorly recorded tracks in a mix, which does happen, uh, sometimes, you know, it's like, oh God, what, is this, what was this guy thinking? But then I think, well, wait a minute, I don't know what the situation was. I remember uh, on one film, there was a a shot that was like a close-up and the mic was off it was it, all we had was a boom and it was way off mic it sounded like he was in a you know reverberant room 10 feet away and the shot was like was. the shot was like full head and i asked him what happened you know and there was no adr i had to use it and um, he told me that there were two cameras and I had never really thought about that before. You know, it's like there's two cameras. One is on a close-up and one is on a wide shot. And you can't get a boom in close enough to really get a good... So, and, and that's why we use wires now. That's why we have wires. Now, this was on, uh, I think it was Spike Lee school days. So that was 
pretty early. That was like 1984, 85. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the wires were really in use very much back then. Well, you certainly didn't get much range out of it. Yeah. You'd have to have your antenna just close to set. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I always encourage them. I, I try and always contact a production mixer at some point and invite them to come into the mix because I think it's great for them to see what goes on in the mix. If they can find the time to come in and visit for a day or even half a day. I think that's wonderful. And just watch, you know, dialogue pre-dub. How is this stuff getting put together? And what are the challenges, you know? And, and I think it's very good for, for them to be able to experience that. Do you have that kind of um, rapport also with your directors? You were talking about, oh, that was two cameras on that particular shot, and right. the, the boom wasn't anywhere close, and the right. wire wasn't great. So that Spike, in this case, may not hurt himself by doing that wide and that tight together. Yeah, I, I, I think he was around. For, I, I remember that he was there when I was complaining bitterly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he, you know, he, he took note of it. I, I think that um, directors are interesting because some of them, like Spike, is really into it. And he, he would come to a dialogue pre-dub and sit there all day. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, which is very unusual for a director to do that. And I don't know that it's really a good thing. I think it's probably counterproductive to have them sitting there, you know, while I'm trying to work out the dialogue. I'd rather have them stay away and let me get something together that I feel is presentable. And then they can pick it apart if they want. But I'd come in at, you know, 8.30 in the morning and he'd, he'd be already there waiting for me day after day after day. Whereas somebody like Jonathan Demme or Marty Scorsese, it's like pulling teeth to get them to come in. They don't want to see it before it's ready to be seen. And when they do come in, it's always good and productive. But they're not interested in seeing how the sausage is being made. You know, They don't want to have to sit there and watch the same line 25 times while I'm getting the EQ worked out. I think it's a good thing to do it that way because uh, they come into it fresher. I mean, they've been working in the cutting room with a temp mix, with the editor for months and months, and they haven't seen the final mix. They don't know how the score is going to work. They don't know how the whole thing is going to go together. And then to have directors sitting there during a dialogue pre-dub while you're just working with the dialogue and the ADR, I think it's hard for them. And it makes it harder down the line when you get to the final mix for them to really see it as a whole. They're still, you know, looking at the... Looking at the minutia? At the minutia. It's always helpful to have an editor there. I think that it's good to have the editor. I loved working with Thelma Schoomaker and Craig McKay and in, on the dialogue and working with the ADR because choosing ADR and how you use it is, uh, is a real important task. And sometimes... You know, they'll record a whole line, but all you need is maybe one syllable or one word or two words out of that line. And or sometimes you might want to use a combo of the production and the ADR. And But and, they know what the intention was. And they know what they're looking for and they know how it's playing for them. And I remember Craig McKay would always come in and audition all the ADR. And we'd listen to all the different alts, and he'd say, well, let's take this first word from the first take, and we'll use the middle part of it from the third take, and we'll go back to the first take, and maybe the end of the, end of the line we'll use from take three. 
And he'd make, a, you know, he'd, he'd listen to them all and put them together in his head and say, let's use these, this and this and this. And then you put them together in that combo. And it's a completely different performance, you know, and it works the way they want it to work. So uh, it's always fun. I, I always had a lot of fun doing that, you know, just trying to figure out how to, how can we construct this line so that the thing that they want to fix gets fixed, whether it's a performance thing or whether it's an environmental thing or a technical problem? You know, all the reasons why we do ADR. It's, it's always a, it's sort of like putting a puzzle together in terms of how you can use as much of the production as possible because the production usually is always better in terms of, you know, performance unless that's the reason for the ADR. It's authentic, yeah. 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 Now, Craig McKay, right? Craig McKay, yeah. He, he was an, he's an editor in New York, New York editor. But he was instrumental in you getting your first film, Melvin and Howard, That's right. correct? He, he was the editor of Melvin and Howard. He had worked with my mother as an assistant, I think, or as a, a sound editor on Slaughterhouse-Five. Wow. He had become an editor, and he had done a few films. He did some, a couple of films first, and then he got Melvin and Howard, and he suggested to Jonathan that they hire me. And I was amazed. I mean, I I didn't think that was going to happen. But you had mixed, you've re-recorded some projects before this, right? Some I had, student yes. films and, and documentaries? I had done a couple of documentaries. Yeah, I did a uh, film for Errol Morris. I think it was his first film about pet cemetery owners. I watched that recently. <laughs> uh, that was really the first thing I ever mixed in terms of a real I had a girlfriend who did a student film that I mixed at the time, but I can't really count that. Uh, I guess I could count it. I do remember, <laughs> it's funny, it just jogged my memory. She got Bob Wise to come in and screen the film, and he turned around to me and said, you recorded this? I said, yeah. He said, hey, good job. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. So that was encouraging. Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> And so, yeah, Craig was, Craig was, and on Melvin and Howard, we were mixing that scene that you played with in the truck at the beginning. And he really helped me with, you know, let's get a little more out of the end of this line and, you know, push that word a little bit if you can. And he took me through it and was very, very kind and helpful to me in terms of, because it was, I was really in over my head, I think. I not sure I was ready to take on a whole feature at that point by myself. Why do you say that? Were well, you not technically ready? or, or I just or... Didn't, I didn't feel ready to, you know, it's like, I mean, I'm always up for a challenge, and that was a big challenge. Once I got into it, I was fine. But it was that first reel, the first week of the mix, when I was just doing the dialogue on that first reel, when... Uh, I still didn't have my sea legs, really. I was still feeling my way around the console and how the EQs were working. And I had done quite a bit of that kind of stuff doing dailies. Chris Newman used to have me transfer the dailies through the mixing console, okay. which was turned out to be a bad idea. So, so how much was automated during that time? And, None. And, okay, so no it was automation. all... It was no automation at all. Uh, it was all... It was an old Quad 8 console with detented EQs, 2 dB steps mm -hmm. of the EQs. And I learned from Dick, and Dick would, the way he worked would be, he, he would go through the reel and write down every fader level on, you know, on the cue sheet. They had cue sheets. I remember that. Which was a diagram of all the tracks and where they were in, in the timeline. 
Uh, and he would write down the fader level and EQ settings for every track. And we hardly used any compression at all in those. I think we had a, you know, a compressor on the bus. That was it. There wasn't dynamics on every, on every channel. It's just an EQ and a fader, basically. Um, how many faders did you have to work with? I mean, how wide was your track layout? Uh, <laughs> I had uh, 12 faders, and there were six empty slots on the console. And the facility at Transaudio where I was working, in order to get that film in the house, had to agree to put the extra six fit, you know, channel strips in. So I had 18 faders for the whole mix. That was it. And we did do a dialogue pre-dub, but the music was all, it was all mono, you mm -hmm. know, there was no stereo. So it was a vastly smaller number of channels, you know, maybe six or eight sound effects tracks and a couple of music tracks and a few dialogue tracks. That was it. And there was no pre-dubbing, just put it all up. And so that would have, uh, you know, that would change your workflow then. You definitely have to go scene by scene. Oh, yeah. Because I hear, hear you say that yes. in, in interviews. Yes. <laughs> yes. Scene by scene and line by line. And, you know, it was a matter of, in those days, where you had to find a way... If you were going into something that you had finished, let's say you wanted to go back and change something, the only way to get in was to listen and set it, you know, hopefully you had made notes on the cue sheets of where the faders were and where the EQ was. Otherwise, you would have to try and do it by ear, you know, find the right level and find the right EQ, A and, you know, peck direct, yeah, right, A and B, input, output, and adjust the fader until it matched. And then, okay, at that footage, I can punch in. And you would have to do this for everything, music, sound effects, you know. We did have a three-track master, so you could punch into the, you know, if you just had to change the music, you could punch in just to the music. But you would have to still have to match it by ear. And you'd have to find an in point and find an out point, right? And then punch in, do what you needed to do, and punch out. And Are there any horror stories from back then where you actually... Didn't do a great punch, so you had to go back uh, Well, yeah, that used to happen all the time, but you would have to just go back and fix it. The worst thing that ever happened to me uh, in those days was I was playing back a sequence, and I didn't realize that the master was in record. And I wasn't doing any... I was just watching the film. And... It was wiping out everything I had done that whole day. I had to go back and redo it all. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I didn't realize it was overwriting what... I'm going, why does this sound so weird? And I realized in the middle of it, I stopped. And, oh, shit. I, I just wiped out half a day's worth of <laughs> work. You're a human being. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. That was a bad feeling. But, hey, you know, I, I, I remember doing a voiceover session once. And... Uh, I had something set wrong on the on the recorder, and there was nothing on the tape at the end of the session. And the talent had already left. I went back to start. You know, I hadn't checked. I was really new. I this was in the beginning. Lucky I didn't get fired for that. Uh, they had to bring the guy back. He had to redo the whole thing. Yeah. So, but. And back in those days, how long did you have to dub a, a feature? Or, or oh, a documentary. I mean, what were time few weeks, frames like? Yeah, three, four weeks, I think, we was generally... It, it didn't really... Even when the automation came in, that didn't make it go any faster, necessarily, I don't think. 
I think we probably had three or four weeks on Melvin and Howard to do the whole thing. It's comfortable. So it was a comfortable schedule, yeah, yeah. And obviously, it was a lot less complicated than things are now. I mean, there was many fewer tracks, and it was mono. But it's a really nice mix, though. Yeah, it's it's a lovely movie, and uh, I had a lot of fun. The composer was Bruce Langhorn, who at the time I didn't know that he was Mr. Tambourine Man. He, I didn't know that either. He was Mr. Tambourine Man. He worked <laughs> with Bob Dylan on Bring It All Back Home. He was, and he plays that lead guitar on Mr. Tambourine Man. That crazy little tinkly lead guitar. That's him, and I didn't know that was him. At wow. the time, you know, and we just had a great time. Uh, he came into the mix. He was there and we were working, you know, with Jonathan and Craig. And uh, then I found out years later that, you know, he was Mr. Tim. Wow. Now, <laughs> cool. did you find this out when you were doing one of the Bob Dylan documentaries? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Yes. And um, with the, the Eagles documentary, you said you went back to original um, multi-tracks. Yeah. Were you able to yeah. with 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 the, with the Bob Dylan? I mean, what what was your source material? The like? source material was mostly archival on that. I mean, it was uh, yeah, it was old recordings. Certainly, all the Newport stuff was you know recorded at the time. I don't think we had any actual master, you know, original masters or anything like that. The George Harrison documentary that Marty Scorsese made was great because. Giles Martin, George Martin's son, redid all of the mixes in 5.1. He took all of his dad's original mixes, went back to the original tracks, and remixed them in 5.1, matching what his father had done in the original mixes. So it was wow. amazing. It sounded so good. And he would call me in and say, hey, Tom, listen to this. And he'd play me like the drum track from... Yeah, here comes the sub or whatever. Uh, some of the individual tracks were just amazing to listen to. So was this one of the cases that you really didn't have to do much when it came to you? Uh, no, I still had to work it around everything else that was in the track, all the dialogue and sound effects. But he was just working on the songs. So, uh, yeah, I would take his mixes and work them into the film. And that's a whole lot of fun. I mean, that's uh, making... That's one of the things that really excites me about mixing is, you know, the timing, working things out with voiceover and music and how you bring stuff down for voiceover or dialogue and make it work so that the audience doesn't feel the manipulation. And that's one of the things that Craig McKay really taught me a lot about because I would make a, a fader move and he'd go, oh, I heard that move. Go do that again. <laughs> you know, and we'd work on it until I found a way to work it either under a sound effect or under a line of dialogue so that you didn't hear the fader move. And suddenly the, you know, the music was lower, but you don't know how it got there. And that was, a, there was a lot of that, on, particularly in the documentaries. I mean, that's usually all voiceover. And you tend to be ducking things probably quicker yeah. than, than you do on a feature. Yeah, and you have to find a way to do it, you know, so that it works rhythmically. And sometimes that means moving the voiceover a little bit, you know, so it's on a beat or on a downbeat or right after a downbeat, you know, you can hit the, let the beat hit and then you can pull the fader mm -hmm. and it's not apparent. That's the whole trick is fooling the audience, like sleight of hand. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Speaking of that, did you do any magic? Growing up, or? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I always loved it, but uh, I never did, no. 
but it is. It's very much like that. It's uh, it's interesting. So um, I had set up a couple of clips. I don't know. We may have covered some of the material, but uh-huh. I'm going to play back something else, and we'll see where that goes. Okay. <laughs> Christmas, I want a glass eye like one of those crystal balls they have with snow inside of them. And I tip my head back like this, and then like this, and then there's snow falling in my <laughs> eye. That sounds wonderful. Shh. Listen. Is Daddy writing again? Oh, Duncan! <laughs> The World According to Garp. Oh, my goodness. Garp starts writing again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, And then the second one was um, John Travolta out in the field um, or along the river um, in Blowout. Oh, okay. Blowout dick mixed. I sort of was sitting in the back for that one. I did work, I think, maybe I did work on that a bit with him. It was just, I brought these two clips up because... I think they're great examples of storytelling through sound. Uh-huh. And uh, I was just wondering... The first clip, could... World According to Garp, was, was... I was second chair on that with Dick. Dick was the main mixer. And I was still... I think I had probably done Melvin and Howard and Honeysuckle Rose and One Trick Pony at that point. Those were the first three features after Melvin and Howard. And then World According to Garp I did with Dick... It was a film called Simon that I worked on with him as well, Marshall Brickman film with Alan Arkin. But World According to Garp, I was second chair. So I think I was probably just doing sound effects. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Dick was doing dialogue. And the same thing with Blowout. And I can't even remember if I was actually working on Blowout or whether I was just hanging around the stage. Did you learn much from Dick when you were second chair? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. I learned everything from Dick. Dick was great. He was very methodical and didn't say much, but he didn't have to. He just did it. And I would ask him questions. I I was working in the transfer room at TransAudio, and uh, we would get these long transfers. They would send us uh, 2,000-foot rolls of 16-millimeter Oricon news-gathering footage (laughs) that had to be transferred to 16-mag. So a 2,000-foot load of 16-millimeter would run for about an hour. And I would get the transfer going, make sure it was cool, everything was working. I'd sneak out of the transfer room. I had another guy who was working with me, and I'd say, Billy, keep an eye on this for me. And I would sneak out and go down into the back and sit in back of the stage and just watch what was going on with Dick, and he would let me do it. And I got away with that for a number of years while I was in the transfer room. I think, you know, because of their his relationship with my mom and everything, I sort of had a leg up, and they would let me get away with stuff like that. I mean, I don't think anybody else could have gotten away with that. Uh, but it was great for me. I, you know, I got to sit there and watch what he did and watch how he interacted and 
how things were sort of the, what the workflow was. And it, it was really a good learning experience. The other great learning experience I had was mixing student films. At that time, Transaudio was working with NYU and Columbia University School of Journalism had a film program then. This was in the mid-70s, late-70s, and School of Visual Arts. And they offered the students a $25 an hour mix rate. And I would come in on my, for my, I was making transfer room scale at the time. And I would come in on Saturdays and Sundays and mix these student films, the, you know, the graduate student projects. And it was great training. Run into every possible problem you could imagine, you know, cue sheets that were written on graph paper and... <laughs> Probably rough-sounding um, Terrible-sounding production, production sound. tracks, right? <laughs> Just bad, horribly distorted and off-mic and every problem you can imagine, wind noise and everything. Uh, and I would try and have to solve it as best I could. And, and I would, I did this for over a year, like every weekend I was going in and... And did you um, build any lasting relationships with any of the filmmakers then? Uh, well, I, I didn't really. I did work with Nancy Savoca. She had a student film. And I finally wound up mixing at least one of her films, Household Saints, and uh, Joel Cohen. Oh, wow. <laughs> Joel Cohen had a student film that I mixed. But Skip wound up doing all his stuff. Uh, I never worked with him after that. There's a number of editors that started working professionally that uh, I had done those films for. But it was fun. I mean, I, I loved it. I, I wouldn't mind going, spending my weekends doing that. And uh, it was a challenge. I mean, I just sort of took it as a, you know, a great way to learn and a great way to be challenged and try and figure out how to make something work that wasn't, you know, necessarily great to begin with. And I wasn't always successful, but, you know, try to do the best you can. Yeah. Uh, you polish it, don't you? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, you can only do so much, you know, with material that you're given, uh, but you just try and make it sound as good as it can sound and make it play. And even if it doesn't sound very good, if it's, if the scene is playing, it doesn't really matter because the audience will be involved in the scene and they won't really notice that, you know, oh, that line sounds really distorted or off mic. Uh, as long as you can hear what the actor is saying mm -hmm. and stay with the story and stay involved in the film, I don't think it makes any difference, really. It's when the technical problems get in the way of the storytelling that things fall apart. It takes you out of the film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, if you can't, you know, if you have to turn to the person next to him, next and say, what did he say? You're not there anymore. If you don't hear a line of dialogue or if something is wildly out of sync or something is missing or there's some horrible sound in there that doesn't belong or it's way out of balance, you know, some too loud foley, you know, suddenly you're thinking about the footsteps and you've lost interest in the story. I, I never want anyone to think, oh, what a cool sound effect that is. I don't want them to think about a sound effect. It's maybe cool to me and maybe cool to the guy who designed it. You know, there's some great sounding sound effects, but they have to serve the story. You yes. know, it's got, if, if you're thinking about the sound, then we're not doing our job right. You know, they, 
audience should never be thinking about, oh, man, that pan. Wow, what a great pan that was. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I knew a sound editor once who he had a great little catchphrase. He said, you know, they don't leave the theater whistling the Foley's. Do you think people get tripped up with that today? Uh, well, I think that sometimes mixers, young mixers, inexperienced mixers, who are sort of, as I was, dazzled by the gear of course. in the beginning, you know, before you really figure out that that's only a means to an end, and it really all has to become second nature, I don't really think about what gear I'm using. I just see what the problem is, and I just sort of automatically know what I need to use, to, what tool I need to use to fix it. But in the beginning, when you're still figuring out how all these things work, you know, what does an equalizer do? What does a compressor do? What does a noise gate do? Uh, you can get focused on the technology and forget about the story. And, you know, and I'm certainly guilty of it myself in some of my early work. I think that, you know, it, it was that way. I, I can relate to that idea. But I think that... Uh, it all has to be all the all the technical stuff. What desk you're working on, or you know, what version of Pro Tools, you know, that's not the focus of what we do. The focus of what we do is in the in the what's going on on screen, what's happening in the scene. You know, is there something in there that's distracting that will take the audience's attention off the story? And if there is, then you got to fix it. Great advice. I mean, that's how I do it. It's like you have to watch the film every pass. Every time I hit the play button, I'm trying to think as if I'm seeing it in the audience for the first time, and is it holding my attention? Am I with the performance? Uh, that was the great thing about working on The Irishman, because there was hardly any sound effects. It's a very quiet it's film. It's so quiet. And they insisted it be that way. And... Uh, I remember Thelma, you know, we were mixing some dialogue scene. She kept saying, what's that racket? What's that racket? You know, and it was just the room tone. <laughs> but it was distracting her, you know. We had to find a way to suppress that somehow. Was it this scene? That was one of them. Yes. That one and the one where he's talking about blowing up the laundry place. When he's talking to, to Harvey Keitel. And when you come back... Those two scenes were, were really difficult. And they're, you know, one of them, they're both in a quiet place where nothing's going on. In this scene, the breakfast scene, uh, there was a, something on the set that was creating a really heavy hum in one of the angles. So it, would, it was cutting back and forth between Joe's angle and Bob's angle. And as soon as Joe would hit the screen, you'd hear, right? And... When we tried to get that out of there, it was affecting his voice. Thelma wasn't happy with the way it was affecting his voice. But I finally managed to notch out the hum enough so that we could smooth it over. But she wouldn't let us put room tone in. She wouldn't let us put any kind of ambience in. It was just the, that's basically just the production track in that scene. There might be a little bit of room tone background that Eugene put in. But just to... Just Mend it. sort of hold things <laughs> together a little bit. But there was no place to hide anything there, you know. And the other thing in that scene that was going on was that um, Joe was chewing the cereal. And his, they were playing his voice over the shot of, of Bob. 
And that sh those shots of Bob in that scene are really important because it's, he's getting it. He's getting it, being told what he has to go kill his best friend. Mm -hmm. And you could hear Joe chomping away, you know. So Phil Stockton did a great job of getting, you know, going in surgically, removing all of the chewing. We worked a long time on that scene. I believe it. Yeah. And and I'm assuming it was boom, yeah? Or, uh, it was or, both. It was I think there were there was a boom and a love on on each one. On so each they angle. they cut both for you probably. Yeah, we had both available to us, yeah. Uh, and I probably used combination of, you know, something. I I don't remember, but yeah, sometimes that love gets you out of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to play back another clip. Okay. This time from Hugo. To be like this, you can fix it. You don't, you don't understand. I thought, if I could fix it, I wouldn't be so alone. Hugo. Hugo, look. Look, it's not done. It's not done. It's not writing. It's drawing. my father saw. George's name. Why would your father's machine? Yeah. What a beautiful name. film. It is. It is a beautiful film. And what a great job. Oh, thank you. It was a hell of a lot of fun. That film was really the music was so good. Ugh, and beautiful. Yes. Uh, all of the sound design that Eugene and Phil put together, that automaton scene was so much fun to put together because when they actually shot it, a lot of the internal workings of the thing weren't there. It was some servo motors were moving, right? So you would hear it sound, it would sound like a, like a dot matrix printer, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and obviously Gene didn't want to use that stuff. He didn't want that in there. He and he 
tried to replace it all with stuff that he created. But there was a couple of places in the in the scene where Marty and Thelma had gotten used to the sound of the production track. And they insisted that it go in. And Eugene was totally against it. But eventually we managed to work it in. And if you listen really carefully, you can hear that, you know, that... The scraping? The, the scraping actually is Foley, but the sound of the mechanism that moved the arm on the set, you know, when they were shooting, was audible. It, was, it sounded like a servo motor like a, or like a kind of noise, a mechanical noise, which wasn't conducive to what we were seeing. You know, it was supposed to be an ancient 1800s instrument, you know, the mechanism. Uh, and they wouldn't make that sound. And that's what, you know, Gene was objecting to. But we had to use it. You know, that production track had to be in there. So we sort of covered it up with other stuff. And the music helped. Now, Eugene uh, was a supervising sound editor as well as 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 On second Hugo, recording mixer. He was he was, he was uh, I'm not sure that he and Phil were co-supervisors, but he definitely was the effects design. He did all the sound effects. Yeah. Did he mix with you though? He did, but he wasn't credited. But he did mix with me. Yeah, because I've seen in in other years he's been credited as yes, as yeah, co-recording. Yeah, was on on Irishman he's credited with me. Uh, he did all the effects in Irishman. Took them all out. <laughs> 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 no, he was very good, and on Irishman he was found a way to find things that worked without being distracting. So kudos to him. Yeah, there was a number of scenes where, particularly that. The scene where they're in Florida, where he has the confrontation with Stephen Graham. When we first cut to that first shot, it's a wide shot of the room, and they're sitting at the table. Uh, and Thelma wanted to be able to establish that we were in Florida. And we tried a bunch of things. We tried some seagulls. She was talking about palm fronds, you know. Okay. But we're in a room. We don't see the palm fronds. It was tricky. We wound up using a little bit of a bird, some kind of a bird that Eugene had that worked. And it's very subtle. Probably most people wouldn't even hear it, but it's in there. And that was satisfying to them. They, they, they accepted that. Uh, so I have a question. Um, you started off mixing in mono, uh-huh. gone to stereo, then to 5.1, yeah. um, Hugo, immersive, 7. Hugo was 7.1. 7.1. Yeah. Um, and no Atmos mixes and so forth? Uh, the only Atmos mixes I've done at this point were uh, Uncut Gems and Irishman. Those were really the first two features in that, real Atmos. I had done a TV series, Dickinson, for Apple, where we did that series in Atmos, but it was home theater Atmos, which okay. is a different setup. How do you think it helps or hinders your storytelling ability with sound? I think it can be helpful. I, you know, it, it depends on how you use it. It's a tool. It's there. I don't feel like you always have to put something in the ceiling, you know, although it's very nice to have subtle ambiences, birds and, you know, wind and stuff like that. Very, very nice for music. Lovely for score where you can separate, yeah. bring things off the screen, elements of the score that can be brought up. In terms of panning, 
I've never been a real big fan of doing heavy panning on things, particularly dialogue. Uh, and certainly Foley is a problem. Panning, it certainly it gets into the surrounds. I, I don't believe it. I, I find it doesn't seem natural. So if it doesn't seem natural, it's going to be distracting. Yeah. But yeah, it's a great thing. I mean, the technology as it has evolved, it's always been getting better. It didn't get worse. I remember going from mono to Dolby stereo was wonderful. And what was the first mix that you did in Dolby stereo then? Uh, Honeysuckle Rose. And I got fired. What? Yes. Tom Fleischman got fired? I got fired, yeah. It was the second feature. It was right after Melvin and Howard. And I didn't get fired because I did anything wrong. I had pre-dubbed the dialogue, and we were ready to come in and put the music in. And it stars Willie Nelson, and it's full of his songs. On the Road Again is kind of like the mm -hmm. theme song of the movie. And Willie had a mixer from Nashville come up to help with the music. And he came into the mixing room at Trans Audio, and he was used to mixing in a music environment where the speakers are near field and stereo, left and right, no center speaker. They're not 40 feet away behind a screen, and they're not going through a matrix, which has a tendency to pull things into the center anyway. And he freaked out. He said, I have no separation. His mixes weren't translating to him the way he had mixed them. He was very unhappy. And so they decided to go out to L.A. and Dick Portman finished the movie in L.A. And I'm sure that the guy had the same problem there because <laughs> they were using the same system. You know, it was Dolby Stereo, Dolby A. Mm -hmm. uh, this was 1980, 1980. And how did that affect you? I was very disappointed. Uh, I was hurt. Uh, but hey, you know, uh, it is what it is. Uh, Aaron Mavakian was the film editor, and he came to me and said, Tom, I'm sorry, we have to pull it out of here because Brad is just, he can't, he can't work here. And uh, all right. So I guess I didn't really technically get fired in that sense, but the project went, the away. Project went away. But then I had, you know, the next film was, uh, was Paul Simon. <laughs> one trick pony and that went well uh the director quit in the middle of the mix that's odd yeah yeah so director the, you, was you finished with the editor and the producers? robert young was the director and we had done uh all the dialogue pre-dubs and we had mixed the first real phil ramon came in and worked with me on the music that was fantastic that's i learned amazing. so much from him <laughs> And he had mixed all of Paul's stuff, you know, at that point. He was doing Billy Joel. And he worked, we were on a night schedule. We were working, because Dick Voracek was mixing, I think, Dress to Kill. Okay. During the day. And so I would come in at six. They were working in mono. I had to move the left speaker, the right speaker over to the right side of the screen, repatch it. <laughs> and, uh, we worked from seven at night until four in the morning. That was our schedule. It was a rough schedule. Uh, we did that on Honeysuckle Rose as well. But Phil was great, and he taught me a lot. And we, uh, 
put together the first reel, and there was a montage sequence where Paul Simon has gotten divorced, and he's on the pity pot, and he's, you know, riding around in the subway, feeling blue, and one of his songs is playing through this montage, and they had put in sound effects, you know, street sounds and subway sounds and stuff. And Paul Simon came in to review it. And after we watched it, he said, what is that symphony of sound effects under my song? And he and the director got into a yelling, screaming match over it. Oh, wow. And Bob Young walked out at midnight and never came back. And so Paul kind of took over and finished the mix. You know, he directed the rest of the mix. Suddenly, does it say they took the sound effects out? <laughs> In that sequence, yes, they did. They, or it's way down low, you know, it's just lowered. I think we Duck for the low. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a good experience and difficult because the schedule was so brutal. And uh, nobody wanted to be there all night long, you know. Back then, did you have to do that a lot? Uh, not no. I did those two movies that way, and I think that was that was it. I never did that again. You know, it, it was difficult because everyone was tired and grouchy, and <laughs> it's hard not to be when you're. It wasn't up in the a great movie. <laughs> you know, it wasn't a great movie, uh, and Paul was difficult, but it we got through it. So and late in the evening became a big hit. <laughs> um. On Reds, with, mm -hmm. with Warren Beatty, you were nominated for your first Academy Award. Yes. Along with your mother. Yes. For editing and, yes. and best sound. Explain, what were the emotions like going through that? That must have been an amazing day when the nominations came out. I remember well. I was in the elevator going up with a couple of the ed sound editors, and they said, congratulations, you got nominated. And I went, what? Because no one from New York had ever been nominated for a Best Sound Oscar up to that point. We were the first, Dick and I. Wow. It just was, you know, in those days, there was a, a lot of sort of rivalry between East and West Coast. The Editors Guild was still two different locals, and they didn't like each other. And I was in Local 52, which was a production local, Mm -hmm. in New York. Re-recording was still under the sound part of Local 52. And uh, I think in New York and Hollywood, we didn't work the same way. Dick always worked by himself until I started working with him. And that's the way I learned to do it. So the first few movies that I did, I did by myself, handling all the tracks. And in Hollywood, they were working with three men three men or women. I don't think in those days there were no women mixing. Uh, and I think there was some jealousy. I think that went both ways. We were jealous of all the great amount of work that they had. And I remember Buzz Knudsen on Reds. Uh, had, Buzz had mixed Heaven Can Wait just before Reds with Warren. And Warren trusted Buzz. So when we finished the mix on Reds, Warren invited Buzz to come and screen it and sort of bless it, bless the mix. And we went down to a theater in Midtown Manhattan at midnight and screened the movie from midnight to three in the morning with Buzz. 
And the next day, uh, we went into the mixing stage, and Buzz had a little list of things. He had his know. notes, huh? His, he had his little notes, yeah. And he would say, uh, when he says, da 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 and he would quote the line, I couldn't hear that. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a little strange. But Buzz and I hit it off. And he would invite me to breakfast every time he came to New York. Todd A.O. opened a place here in New York, Tadio East, uh-huh. across the street from Transaudio. And they actually was originally a Transaudio studio uh, that they had built for Dick. And I had left Transaudio by that time and gone to Sound One. Uh, but Buzz would come into New York on occasion. He'd always invite me to go to breakfast. And he every time he would come take me to breakfast, he'd ask me the same question. I don't know how you guys ever finish a show working by yourselves. And I would say, Buzz, we do it the same way you do. Scene at a time. <laughs> right? But Red's was a great experience. Red's was amazing. It was really disorganized in a way. They hadn't finished cutting. Warren had not finished putting the whole movie together. So we had no reels. When we first started mixing, all we had were scenes. Wow. We would mix it as, we would just mix one scene. So we had all these little three or four track masters with dialogue and effects and no music, little pre-dubs, but just a scene. So you know? was Warren on the stage with you or, or, or was it? He would come in. Yeah. They were, or was it they mom were working in the same building. More. They were, the cutting rooms were here. So he was around. But at that point we weren't, we were really still kind of pre-dubbing. Uh, it was still mono. So it wasn't the kind of pre-dubs we do now, but because they hadn't really finalized, the, they would screen in reels, but they didn't want us to mix reels because they didn't think the reels were going to stay that way, right? So we were just doing scenes, and they would swap the scenes around and recut it and screen it a different way. And they, you know, we had we had a big chart on the wall which which scenes we had mixed and who the editor was and so on and so forth. And eventually, that mix went on for four months. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a long film, too. It was a long film, but it really was, wasn't really ready to mix when we first started. I would say the first half of that schedule was without any reels. So all we were doing was mixing, pre-dubbing scenes without music. Were you up against a release date? We were, but they'd started way early. So we had, you know, we started, I think, in July, beginning of July, and we didn't finish until the end of November. Okay. The film was going to be released early in December, and it was being finished, the picture was being finished in Rome, because it was Storaro, uh, Vittorio Storaro had the silver process. They could only be done at Technicolor in Rome, so uh, <laughs> uh, it got squoze at the end. I mean, our, we were, at the end, we were up against this deadline, because... They had a release date, and the film had to go to Rome to be printed and come back and checked and so on and so forth. So we had these scenes, and eventually they coalesced them into reels. And we mixed in the music. You know, when we got the reels together, we would be able to put in the music. The music at that, up to that point was all just temp. And there wasn't much of a score. They had hired Stephen Sondheim, and he wrote one theme which was basically a ripoff of I'll Be Home for Christmas. Okay. <laughs> was his, was the love theme. And uh, Warren was disappointed. 
uh, and they hired Dave Grusin okay. to do some additional score. And Dave really did a great thing sort of in the second third of the film where they're going back and forth to Finland and uh, they're separated. Him and Louise are separated and she's trying to get to him and he's off in prison in Finland. And there were all of these scenes where she's traveling with this weird looking guy through Finland trying to find him. And, and Dave did this great, really subtle score there for that. He, yeah, he was a lot good. of fun to work with. I, I enjoyed working with Dave Grusin a lot. You've been really fortunate to work with so many amazing musicians over the years and music producers yeah. and composers. Yeah. Yeah. Howard Shore. Yeah. Well, the Hugo soundtrack. Oh. Hugo's beautiful. Su- such I think an the emotional, Aviator soundtrack lovely. is great. I think all of Howard's... Howard really did a great job on Gangs of New York, too. Gangs of New York was originally going to be Elmer Bernstein. And Elmer wrote a score, and they fired him. He didn't hit it. He had it wrong. And Marty was very upset. And we had to wait. The film went on hiatus because Howard was doing Lord of the Rings in Australia. So they had to wait for him to be finished with that. And then he came back and rescored Gangs of New York. Wow. Yeah. Was the right choice then. Yeah. And Last Temptation of Christ, Peter Gabriel? Peter Gabriel. That was so what, much fun. What a nice mix, too. Yeah. A lot going on in that music. Yes. Yeah. U- utilizing the left-right. And uh-huh. how did that translate, do you think, in the, in the theater, now that you had brought up... Um, uh, the Honeysuckle Rose? Honeysuckle Rose. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I think that was fine. Peter was great to work with. He was actually recording that score in the building. He was in, took over one of the ADR stages, and he had a, another musician with him, and I guess they had done the drums in the studio, but he was doing all of the flute stuff, and I remember them working down there for weeks and weeks and weeks, and on one scene, they came up to the stage. We were, we were working late into the night on that film because Marty always likes to come in the afternoon and work into the evening. And he was young enough then so that he could stay until midnight, 3 a.m., whatever, however late it wanted to go. And Peter came up, and there was a, one scene with the... Uh, Willem Dafoe is sitting in the circle, and there's this, sh- like, cut in to a close-up from a wide shot, dum dum dum, cutting into a close-up. And Peter wanted to put a drum sound on the cuts and we had a little synthesizer in the st- on the stage and he was ready to just mix you know play it right into the mix and i said no no we can't we can't do it that way we have to record it <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to have to come in here every time we have to update this and do that again uh, but it was very creative yeah so i'm from los angeles so can you Tell me how, how, how the studios laid out. It sounds like a lot of them are close to each other. Is, is that true in New York? Uh, now it's different. There's a lot of little places around New York now that weren't, didn't exist. Back in those days, there was really only Sound One and Transaudio, which were two major post-production facilities. And we had, they were cutting rooms. The stages obviously were much smaller than what people are used to out here in Hollywood. Ceiling is lower, room is smaller. Uh, I always worked in a smaller room 
the room that I did in Melvin and Howard was probably not much bigger than the space you have here, this whole thing. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, did a, quite a few films there. I did Places in the Heart in that room and Melvin and Howard. Uh, that room was not set for stereo. So once stereo started, I moved into the other stage of Transaudio. What was your first film in 5.1, and when did they start renovating uh, more surround the formats? The first film we did in 5.1 might have been Age of Innocence. We had done a 70-millimeter version of Last Temptation of Christ and The Color of Money. So we had a, a six-track, magnetic six-track, 70-millimeter format version of those films. So those were really the first ones that I used uh, a low frequency, you know, a boom channel and discrete stereo surrounds. But the first real 5.1 uh, Dolby Digital was, I think it was Age of Innocence. Or it might have been one of Jonathan's movies. Because I remember Craig McKay saying to me when he first heard of the 5.1 mix that it's extraordinary. You know, that, oh, this is fantastic, because we had, suddenly we had stereo surrounds, and the stereo was discrete stereo. It wasn't a matrix, which was the problem on Honeysuckle Rose, where the matrix was pulling a lot of the stuff, you know, the that stuff was that was wide. supposed to be on left and right was pulling into the center. Um, and the other thing about Dolby Stereo that was always an issue was that you always wound up with something in surrounds, if you wanted it or not. If you had any kind of stereo material in the tracks, something would go to the surrounds. Especially with strings, right? Yes. Then you'd have a piece of dialogue all of a sudden in the surrounds? Uh, that could happen, <laughs> yeah, because it was steering. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, the, the matrix thing, the, the decoder would steer to whatever channel it thought it should go. So if you had... Uh, something that was something that maybe was slightly out of phase in the dialogue suddenly it would wind up in the surrounds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when when we got away from that matrix system, the four two four Dolby stereo system, that was really a great step forward. I thought uh, I loved it too. I thought it was an extraordinary accomplishment that we were able to do that. But of course, digital sound recording had been used in the music industry for a decade before that. Mm -hmm. And we were, I remember being very jealous that we couldn't use digital because the end product that we were playing, you know, in the theater was still an optical track. And until we could get the theaters to upgrade to some kind of a digital system, it wasn't going to happen. So years and years went by. We were mixing in Dolby Stereo, and I was thinking, God, I wish we could have a discrete you know, system, and not have to go to 70 millimeter. And Eventually you, it happened, so. And then you finally went to the 7.1, where you could spread out everything in yeah. Hugo. Yeah, 7.1 was wonderful in Hugo. I really enjoyed working with that. Put a lot of the, and the, the clocks and gears and the effects. The clocks, and, yes, the and, trains. And, oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the ambiences, too, and music. Used it a lot for the music. As the technology has changed over the years, uh -huh. how has your workflow changed? Or has it at all? It hasn't really. Uh, no. I, I mean, I've always started with dialogue and built from that. That is the 
linchpin of the whole track, right? Mm-hmm. So everything needs to be balanced to the dialogue. And um, that hasn't changed. That's the same. It's just there's more speakers, there's more channels. And now that it's all digital, you know, once we, as soon as we got away from film where we were locked into a six-track full coat mm-hmm. and we couldn't go beyond that, you know, in terms of how many six-track pre-dubs can you run and how many channels can you feed into the console. Once we got into Pro Tools, where that all sort of became unlimited, you could make lots of different stems. You know, we were, we were making a dialogue stem, a music stem, and an effects stem, and suddenly we were able to make not only, you know, one effects stem, but we could make a background stem and an effects stem and a Foley stem. And, you know, we could split the music up into source and score. And that became a way, uh, a really boon to being able to conform things very easily. Yeah. And along with the technological changes in sound, the same thing was happening in the picture department where they were going to Avid. So they were able to keep making changes through the mix and we would have to keep conforming things and having the ability to have a number of different stems where things weren't necessarily mixed together uh, made it very easy to do confos. Double-edged sword because they seem to be making changes until the very last yeah. minute now. Yeah. Well, Marty <laughs> and Thelma always did that. I mean, right from the very beginning, they they were always guilty of that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, I mean, I remember on uh, Cape Fear, I think we had like 1,200 confirmations, you know, after we had finaled the movie. So, you know, we had our final stems all made and was it Cape Fear? No, it was Casino because they were fighting with the MPAA about the violence and the the guy getting his eye popped out in the vice. And Thelma kept taking a couple of frames off of every shot. Oh, wow. <laughs> they also wanted the movie shorter. So it was, it was like, you know, it was a middle finger to the MPAA. You know, okay, you don't like this scene? I'll take a frame off of this shot and send it back. And now you got to watch the whole film again. <laughs> <laughs> and this went on for a long time, you know, time after time after time. So we kept having to make these confirmations in the final mix. Wow. And back then we were on mag and it was, you know, a challenge, you know, cut up the masters. And Now, now, like Spike Lee or Jonathan Demme, um, did they make a lot of changes too? No, no. I mean, occasionally they would, but no, not like... Marty and Thelma were... That was the way they worked because I think that they really needed to see how it would be when it was finished in order to see what they wanted to do differently editorially. So it was a matter of experimentation, you know. It's like, okay, let's put it together this way and maybe we'll change these shots around or use a different take for this. And so when did you start working in Pro Tools? Uh... We didn't start working in Pro Tools until Pro Tools was able to provide machine control on the recorder. We were working with Akai DD8s, which were uh, Mm -hmm. 8-track on a magneto-optical disc. Mm -hmm. We were working with those for probably a good decade before we started working in, in Pro Tools. And it wasn't until we were able to punch into individual channels in Pro Tools and have it follow the PEC Direct and punch in, punch out 
the recorder. At that point, we were totally with it. But I don't, I don't remember exactly when that was or what movie it was. But so now you're on a control surface. Now I'm on an S6. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now there's no more. Did you, did you start with an icon then? I didn't. No, I had a uh, System Five Euphonics. Oh, nice. Which had a hybrid Yukon mm -hmm. ability. So I started with that, but that didn't. I mean, things didn't really map out very well with that. You know, in terms of the plugins. Some of them mapped out pretty okay, but the panning, of, for example, was very difficult on the System 5. And uh, I found myself working with the mouse with that kind of stuff. Now I, I love it. I think it's great. It's uh, one of the issues that we had, for, particularly with the Scorsese films, was with all these confirmations when we were on the DD8s, the editors were cutting in Pro Tools. We were playing back from Pro Tools much earlier, but we were recording on, on the DD8, so they would have to take our pre-dubs, which were on a magneto optical drive, and hose them into a Pro Tools, do the confirmations, copy them back out, and That's eventually that became unsustainable, <laughs> and we had to, you know, we had to find a way to, to uh, work in Pro Tools exclusively. So this is... Um for the Cinema Audio Society. Yeah. And and um, I'm curious, when did you actually join the CAS? I joined the CAS in, I don't remember the year, but it, I was working on any given Sunday. I had come out here to L.A. to finish that film, and I got a CAS nomination, and I was invited to join the CAS. That was your first one? That was the first one, yeah. For any given Sunday. For any given Sunday, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yes, I remember meeting Melissa Hoffman. She, I think, she was president at the time, and she invited me. She said, "You should be in the CAS. Let me get you an application." And you know, she put it in for me, and uh, that's that's when I got in. And um, where do you see the organization going from your perspective? Well, I think it's a wonderful organization. I think that, you know, uh, the educational part of it, the whole student recognition award thing is is terrific. Encouraging schools to get involved in teaching sound. I know that in my case, where I, the course I'm teaching with Chris Newman is the first real sound course, advanced sound design course that that school has taught. And they actually built a little mix room for us Oh, that's great. With an S3 and nice Pro Tools, and, you know, the students are using it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, uh, the CAS promoting cinema sound. I mean, it's half the experience, and we get short shrift for the most part, I think, from the producers. They seem to have the idea that, you know, we can fix it in post and... I know that the production mixers have a real hard time getting their say on the set. And the camera department kind of rules the roost, right? It certainly does. Yeah. And, and, you know, being a production mixer, yeah. um, you really do have to be um, assertive. So I think it's, you know, <laughs> it, I think that, you know, as the CAS grows and people become more aware of, you know, the importance of sound, that hopefully will change. And producers and directors will be more conscious early on in the process of the making of the film of 
how important sound is and they will budget properly. Um, sadly, I don't see that happening right now. Right now I'm seeing budgets getting smaller and schedules getting shorter and it's becoming very frustrating for me as someone with my history to see this happening because, uh, you know, I feel like when I'm working on a TV series, um, on Dickinson, for example, I had two days per episode for a half-hour episode. Is and that a one-person mix or a two-person mix? That was a two-person mix. I had my assistant, Rick Schnupp, who's I hope will be invited to join the CAS soon. He's doing great, great work. He mixed Midsommar and uh, Excellent Brittany Runs a Marathon, yeah. and he's doing great. And, you know, I've kind of been working with him for a few years. He started out as my re recordist, and uh, now he's mixing. That's great. He's doing good. He'll, he'll be there tonight, I think, he told me. He's going to Sundance. He has a film that's opening in Sundance tonight, or last night, and he's coming out here tonight for this. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, I think that the mentorship, I think, is a, is an important part of it. And I see that happening in CAS. I see people mentoring one another. And student recognition awards are great. So that's really, I think, the focus of the organization is to just educate producers and directors and filmmakers about the importance of sound, that it's just as important as the image. I certainly try to reinforce that with my producers and yeah. directors. And... Yeah. and um, been successful as well, mm -hmm. um, getting the additional boom operator when I need it and um, always bring storytelling into it. And it's like, how should this sound? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> a, a lot of them tell you to use wires. Yeah, right. Because they want to save money. I don't need an extra boom operator. Just, just wire wire, wire everything. Right. Yeah. It doesn't serve the story that well. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other thing is that this, you know, I heard somebody talking about they were offering him $135 a day to do a 12-day feature by himself with no boom operator. And, it, you know, this kind of thing is just unacceptable. It's sound capture, and it's, it, it it's, stems from the ENG. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, you know, CAS can help change that kind of stuff. And this is a problem with very low-budget independent films. And I understand that it's hard to get financing for a film, but my feeling is that if you can't get your film properly funded, maybe you should wait to make it until you can. Because to do a half-assed job is just, it doesn't help anybody. No. It doesn't help anybody. So I have a little um, quote, and this is from Garp again, but I just thought it was perfect. It's really nice, you know, to look back and see the arc of your life. And it's all connected. How you got from there to here. See the line, you know? Yeah, that's a great quote. So you're receiving tonight yeah. <laughs> the Career Achievement Award. And I've been thinking a lot about just that, you know? How do they get from there to here? And it's been a fantastic experience. You know, I, I have a family, and I know that one of the downsides of our business is that we don't always get to spend the kind of time with our families that people who are working nine to five job do. Uh, you know, when I was working all those weekends back in, you know, the seventies and 
it's hard on the family, uh, but it's so rewarding to have the opportunity. I mean, I feel so lucky to have been in a position where I was in, you know, in a place where the film community in New York is small and tight-knit, and everyone knows everyone. And it's almost like a family there. Or at least it was when I was starting. And I look back and see how it's progressed and it's grown and it's gotten bigger and more accepted. And uh, that's great. I just feel like really fortunate to have been a part of that. Uh, now, have any of your kids followed you into to? Uh, my son sound? is an assistant locations manager. Okay, so he's uh, in the biz too. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a, that's a difficult job. I don't envy him. <laughs> his hours and you know that I, I don't know location seems to be a a tough road <laughs> I'm sure they're very very proud of you yes they are my oldest daughter is a chef and my middle daughter is a nurse practitioner and uh, I've got four grandkids and they're great of all my oldest is 20 gonna be 24 this year and the youngest is a month old Congratulations, too. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what a nice journey. Yeah. They, Are they joining you tonight? Uh, yes. My three children will be here, and one of my grandchildren and my wife will be here, and my sister. Oh. My sister's lived here in Los Angeles for close to 40 years or so. So, and you've always been in New York, right? I've always been in New York. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of offers to come out here and work, but I just love New York. At one point, I was thinking of moving to Toronto and working up there, but I couldn't leave. I just, you know, there was, I had a good thing in New York, and every time someone would ask me to move here or move there uh, or go to Vancouver or San Francisco, I just didn't want to leave. I, I, New York is home. You, d and, you didn't suffer from the grass is greener syndrome? No, <laughs> I didn't. Only because I was lucky, I was working all the time, and I had clients who were loyal, you know, who kept hiring me, Jonathan and Spike and Marty and, you know, uh, John Sales. They kept coming back, and so I was working. I had a good thing going, so I didn't want to mess that up. With some of the best filmmakers. <laughs> I mean, of yeah. course you wouldn't want to. <laughs> right. I mean, that's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you all day. I'm sure you have great stories to, to, to share, but yeah. um, I really do appreciate your time, you know? Oh, thank you. It's um, my pleasure. So, Tom, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Congratulations on receiving the Career Achievement Award for a lifetime of stellar work. You are so deserving of all the accolades that you've received, and you'll probably continue to receive as long as you decide to work. I want to thank Justin Walker for taking the time to engineer today's podcast. Until next time, I'm Stephen Thibault in conversation with Tom Fleischman for the Cinema Audio Society. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Let me leave you with a little montage of some of Tom's work. Life isn't about finding yourself or finding anything. Life is about creating yourself. Feeling in a fog, confusion. It's gotta get dressed. Not easy. Not, well, easy does it. I'm fine. Just all right. I'll just lie down for a minute. Time out. Y'all take a chill.
You need to cool that shit out. And that's the double truth, Ruth. Mm. If I help you, Clarice, it will be turns with us too. Quid pro quo, I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though, about yourself. Quid pro quo, yes or no? I know how you feel, Frank. Trust me, I know how you feel.